I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson. Uh, once again, Happy New Year. I think we are now firmly into 2017. I um, wanted to say thank you to Robert for being on the episode last week about Sully. Uh, but today, we're going to talk about uh, David McKenzie's Hell or High Water, written by Taylor Sheridan. Uh, but in order to do that, I will welcome in my co-host, Reed Lackey. Reed, how you doing? I'm doing all right, Tyler. How you doing? I'm doing okay. Uh, peek behind the curtain. <laughs> so uh, I woke up with a start. I fell asleep on the couch, which means I did not uh, set my alarm or anything like that. So uh, I woke up and saw that it was 20 minutes past when Reed was supposed to be here. So I was terrified that he was circling my parking lot or something like that. <laughs> uh, thankfully, he was late. So that's that's fine. But, uh, but anytime I wake up with a start, um, it, it definitely has an impact on... Uh, my tone and so i might be a little punchy and i do apologize if i am but uh here's uh what we're going here's what i'm going to lead with as far as uh this episode um last year around this time we we talked about movies that were uh big oscar contenders one way or another or at least awards contenders in some capacity last year we talked about steve jobs we talked about um, Room, yeah. Inside Out, Bridge of Spies. Um, now, not all of those were contenders in every category necessarily, but they are movies being talked about. And so, uh, Sully, while I'm going to guess, is probably not going to be overly embraced by the Academy. You know, there's always the possibility of like a Best Actor nomination oh, or, right, or editing right. or something like that. Um Hell or High Water, much to everybody's surprise, is a major awards contender Yeah, um, for picture, for screenplay, for supporting actor, and various other things. Sure. Uh, and that was a surprise. Um, it seems like every year there's, there's one or two movies that is not Oscar bait. It was not necessarily made for that purpose, um, but it's made very well. People respond to it well. Critics respond to it well. And it starts to have starts to grow some legs and, mm -hmm. and do pretty well. And um, in my Oscar draft, we do follow certain critics uh, awards. And I think it was Nevada that gave Hell or High Water a bunch of awards. Oh, wow. Um, it's in a way that sort of makes sense. Sure. <laughs> sure. Just, it's a very you know, rural state. <laughs> yeah. It's a, and it's, and it's a state of like, it's rural, but also morally corrupt. <laughs> um, because of Reno and Las Vegas, uh, apologies if you live in Nevada, I'm joking. Um, but yeah, and so it's, it's been very interesting. It's, it's a movie that I enjoy quite a bit. I received it for Christmas on Blu-ray and I'm <laughs> eager to rewatch it. Hmm. And <clears throat> it's a film that took me by surprise. It took a number of people by surprise. It came out at a time of the year when I believe it was August, right? Uh, yeah, that sounds right. So, you know, still firmly in summer blockbuster season and, and uh, August is, if there is a dumping ground of blockbuster season, it is August. Hmm. Um, yeah. And so this was clearly not meant to be a blockbuster, but I found myself wondering when I first saw a trailer for it, I thought, what, why are they even releasing this right now? Hmm. I mean, it's going to be swallowed up by bigger movies. Um but I seem to recall it did pretty well at the box office and critics really liked it. And so I think it was a film that was meant to be something of an antidote mm. to the usual summer blockbuster fare. 
Um, and that's, that's definitely what it was for me. I, I, I saw it cause I wanted to see something. I still had my movie pass at the time. And so <laughs> I needed to see something. So I just went and saw that. And, uh, yeah, it, it really, it, it was very stimulating in a number of ways. Um, so I really, really like this movie and, um, I'll talk about some other reactions to it, uh, in a moment, but, uh, Here's something that I have found is often the case with um, my co-hosts. Um, each co-host fulfills a different thing. <laughs> we uh, have different niches. Artistically, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, obviously horror uh, gear is geared towards you. I do often find that um, anything vaguely science fiction, um, hmm. any three of you could probably do okay with it, but I tend to lean towards Josh on that. Sure. Um if there's something that is, this is going to sound strange. It's a very specific type of intellectual. Hmm. Um, I will not intellectual in general, but again, a very specific type. I will lean towards Robert. Like I'd yeah. say a Woody Allen intellectual ah. type or a Wes Anderson intellectual type. Certainly. Um, and so, uh, but I do often find that, and maybe this is wrong on my part. <laughs> if the main characters have Southern accents, I'm probably going to lean towards Reed. Well, golly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Shazam. Shazam. Uh, so, um, and, and I'm not sure why that is because, you know, you are from North Carolina, correct? That's great. Yeah. As, as was uh, Josh, you mm, know, yeah. and then Robert's from Louisiana. Maybe that's why it's easier for you to remember North Carolina. Most people, despite my having told them a dozen times, will guess when they try to guess that I'm from South Carolina. Hmm. But uh, you're one of the only people, probably because Josh is also from North Carolina, right. that it's maybe it's stuck in your head a little bit more. But yeah. Well, and it's, uh, you know, you kind of have a hayseed quality to you that I think mm. maybe people thought like, well, surely he's not from, you know, metropolitan North Carolina. He must be, you know, he must have been born on a tractor in South Carolina. It's the um, coveralls. That's, that's what it is. It, it is an odd choice fashion wise. <laughs> um, so, you know, and I don't mean to, again, I don't mean to necessarily be uh, uh, insulting, but it also could be that um, some of your sensibilities do have, uh, are, are things that I find very interesting because, I think in some cases, your inherent southernness, and I say that in, a, in the best possible way, yeah. uh, manifests itself in an interesting way. Hmm. You know, whether it be Bone Tomahawk, oh man, yeah. or Texas Chainsaw Massacre, or sure. or any type of movie where uh, a film is exploring what it is to live in like a rural area or a, uh, a southern area or something yeah. like that. Yeah, and so um, so yeah, there is a. There is no question for me who who my co-host for this episode <laughs> would be. Um, I think I put it out to all three of you because that's something I'll do. I'll do uh, another yeah. peek behind the curtains is I'll say, "Hey, here are the episodes I'm thinking of. What do you guys want to pick?" And almost invariably, people go with the exact uh, things that you were already thinking. Yeah. So <laughs> you know, I, so it's like, okay, I'm I'm correct. Every once in a while, Robert will throw me. I was not expecting him to jump on Sully. Ah, gotcha. Um, yeah. But uh, but yeah, it was a good. We had a good conversation last week. So uh, anyway, that was. Uh, just a little bit of a, like I said, a peek behind the curtain. Um, so I assume that you did enjoy this film, correct? I did, yeah. And and I mean, you assume correctly. In general, these uh, one one thing that is true for me, whether it be in a modern sensibility or the 
typically defined tropes of the genre. I also love Westerns. Western mm-hmm. is my right. second favorite genre besides the runaway favorite of horror. Mm-hmm. Um, I really respond pretty consistently and strongly to Westerns. And that includes what would be classified as kind of a, mo- you know, like this one, this is sort of a modern Western, you yes. know, that it definitely, the characters speak in that sort of clipped, deliberate speech. Um, the rhythm of the narrative is definitely you know, paced the way that a standard Western would be. Um, and so that's that naturally the film had a lot going for it for me. Um, ironically, we, uh, when I saw it, I saw it with my, uh, fear of God co-host Nathan, when he was in town, we saw hell or high water in a double feature with uh, the magnificent seven. So it was just a, oh, wow. a Western double. Um, but very different tones. Uh, yeah. And, uh, for him, I, I, I don't want to speak too rapidly for him, but I think he responded more strongly to magnificent seven. Uh, he might balk at that if I, if he were here now, but I, uh, strongly re- responded to hell or high water mm-hmm. much more. Uh, I was still, reflecting back on things in hell or high water while I was watching magnificent seven, which is not entirely fair to that movie, but, um, was still thinking about certain moments that I'm sure we'll get to in the, in the conversation. I really just thought it was, uh, very well executed, uh, very well crafted. It's just a good story with strong characters, very well told. And, you know, to, to bring that up in regards to magnificent seven, here's what I'll say. Um, because I've, I, I did that, uh, I wrote that paper and I've been thinking about genre mm. and the, the essence of genre. Um, you know, one of the most obvious examples of a genre is the Western. And right. so I had this thought of like, okay, well, what makes a Western now? There's an, a lot of obvious iconography, but I think there's more than that um, <clears throat> from a tonal standpoint. And based on that, Let's look at the modern Magnificent Seven and Hell or High Water. Magnificent Seven might have taken place more uh, in the time of your standard Western, whereas Hell or High Water is modern day. But I would say that Magnificent Seven, yes, it is a Western, but honestly, it's more of an action movie that takes place in the West, whereas I'd say Hell or High Water is undeniably a Western. I completely There might agree. be cars involved. But it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, it feels more like a Western. It's There's this stark quality to it. There's a certain, there's definitely a stoicism to it, a fatalism to it mm-hmm. um, that you will often find in, in, well, maybe not all Westerns, but probably the best ones are the most essential ones. Right. Um, whereas Magnificent Seven, there are things I like about it, but the stuff, the, the, the pleasure buttons that it pushes in me are action buttons, not Western buttons. Right. I agree with that. Um, but uh, so here's something that I'll say in regards to Hell or High Water. Uh, the vast majority of people that I know uh, like it, but there are a few people that don't really care for it. And Interesting. And their reasons are, I think, not they're not bad reasons, but there, there are two things that I've heard primarily. One is that it is trying to be no country for old men huh. and failing. Uh, although I did, I've also heard uh, the flip side of that where someone said it's trying to be no country for old men or it's the better version of no country for old men. Wow. Um, and that's from, if you'll pardon me, so as listeners know, I'm uh, politically conservative, and I, at this point, have fallen in with a, a couple of uh, conservative commentators. And so I, I listen to more 
of their commentary on things in general. Mm. And so there's one guy who I think is a brilliant commentator, but he will often weigh in on movies and come away with exactly the wrong interpretation. Oh, and wow. so he was talking about how much he loved Hell or High Water and that it was no country for old men without, without like all the pretension. Um, because he really didn't like that last act. He didn't like that Llewellyn Moss was killed off screen. And then once the, the quote unquote conflict is over, now we're just spending time with Tommy Lee Jones, like Hmm. as he contemplates all these things that are happening. And now I like Hell or High Water. I might even love it, but it's, but no country for old men is an astonishing film that maybe, and this, this goes into just a, nitpick of mine that if a movie is not doing what you think it should do in that particular moment, first ask yourself why, Hmm. why is it doing this? Why do I want it to do this other thing? Most people probably want it to do this other thing and it's not. So I wonder why that might be. And, uh, you know, because the answer could be that the director is trying to do something notably different than what you might want or what you might expect. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. So I've heard hell or high water one way or another talked about in context of no country for old men, Mm -hmm. uh, in a number of ways. I mean, it's, it's a modern Western takes place in Texas. There is a rather grizzled lawman going, you know, who's, who's always one step behind. Right. Right. Um, It ends in a, uh, fairly fatalistic way. Um, yeah. In a number of ways, two two main characters are killed, um, and they're characters that we have a fair amount of affection for. Right. And then it ends on a somewhat ambiguous note. Hmm. Um, but that ambiguous note is, is a fairly dark one as well. And so I think people made that comparison. And I, I mean, I probably made it as well, but then I realized like, nah, it's, you know, whatever, it's fine. Right. Um, so, but I do know people thought that it fell short because it was not no country for old men, which yeah, it isn't, but that's okay. Yeah. Very few movies are. I have a... In fact, only one movie actually is. (laughs) Yeah. Only one movie is No Country for Old Men. I go back and forth about uh, the type of, and you would be able to speak more substantially to this if if you wanted to, um, about the the way that we respond to films in comparison to other films. Because at times, I find that dramatically unfair. And then at other times, I find it utterly unavoidable that, okay, I saw this film. This other film is either in the same genre or playing with some similar narrative beats. So I'm going to make a comparison, but I typically tend to try to take a step back and say, okay, I I want to tackle this film on its own merits, unless it is quite clearly either with referential call outs or similar framing directly trying to pay homage or be referential to another film. Um, my example at hand is what Star Trek Into Darkness did with Wrath of Khan in, sure. in, in sort of inversing that moment. Um, so that was so deliberate that I feel qualified to call it out for, well, now I'm going to compare what you did to right. what the original film did and base it on that. But with an instance like Hell or High Water versus No Country for Old Men, I would find it to be just a gross misjustice to both films to mm-hmm. try to put them in the same category and make them compete. Now, if you're talking about which one you prefer on its own merits, yeah. that's a different conversation. Or if you're talking about which one you more personally respond to, that's totally different. But I would balk pretty heavily at the idea of, well, it it's 
lesser in value because it's reaching for a similar thing as this other film. Right. Uh, one thing that I've said about, uh, I said it about musical artists, I've said it about, I believe it as a writer, um, that it's important to know, okay, sure, so this story's been told before, but it's not been told by you. Mm-hmm. Your voice is unique and your voice is distinct. So if you want to try to tell this story, we all know that comedians tell a variety of different kinds of jokes. Yeah. Yet each comedian, especially the the really top tier <laughs> ones, are able to uh, identify their specific comedic styles, even though they may make jokes in similar arenas, yeah. but it's their voice. And so I would look at something like Hell or High Water and be like, well, this is McKenzie telling this kind of story. Yeah. And so on on that basis alone, even if it is, you know, a sort of a, a cover of a different song, it still has its merit because it's in his voice and his interpretation, his stylistic sensibilities. And, you know, it's, it's, if we are going to compare these two movies, um, which by the way, no country for old men is not the companion film, right. but, uh, you know, you, you first see how they are similar. And to me, you almost will immediately see how they are different and yeah. not different as far as quality, but different as far as goal and tone. And, you know, Hell or High Water, I'd say, is much more of a, of a straightforward Western. Um, yeah, I think so. Whereas the incorporation of Anton Chigurh, yeah. um, you know, I was about to say, it's a little bit, you know, it's sort of like, uh, it's Cormac McCarthy-esque. Mm, right. Yes, it is. Cause he wrote the book. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there's, there's a, a metaphysical quality I'd say mm-hmm. to something like no country for all men. Whereas this one is a very, is very straightforward, but in, in the way that you will find in the best Westerns, which is, I feel like there's gotta be a better way to say this, but almost what you see is what you get. Mm. We're too, we're too busy to deal with anything metaphysical, you know, mm, yeah. um, there's, a there's, a I've been, these games have been on my mind lately. So these, <laughs> these computer games that I played in the nineties and there's one that I enjoy called Gabriel Knight, And in it, the main character is like dealing with, you know, voodoo and spiritual forces and all that kind of thing. And your, your best friend is a police detective. Who's not that interested in uh, uh-huh. that stuff, but he's still, he recognized that it's sort of there, oh. but he doesn't want to be the one to deal with it. <laughs> and he's voiced by Mark Hamill, actually. Um, oh, wow. And so there comes a moment when you and, and this character are kind of catching up on things and and you try to explain some of the spiritual stuff. And I still remember this. Uh, I still remember this line because it's delivered pretty well by Mark Hamill, where he interrupts you and he says, look, don't confuse me, okay? <laughs> It's like, I'll let you deal with all the metaphysical stuff and I'll just try to catch the bad guys. <laughs> and I feel like that's, that's, it's that attitude yeah, that yeah. we have to uh, apply towards something like hell or high water versus no country for old men. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so that was one, uh, response that I noticed. And another, um, there are a few people that, that thought the script was really on the nose, which occasionally it is. Hmm. Um, and that they just didn't really respond to it and thought it was very overrated. And I, and honestly, I think this sort of ties into No Country in the sense that I think people are looking at it with a Blood Meridian, No Country, Cormac McCarthy sensibility. Right, right. I actually think, and, I, think, and I, I think I told you this the other day when we, when we spoke, I see it much closer to a Russell Banks novel mm. than yeah. uh, Cormac McCarthy. 
uh, Russell Banks wrote Affliction. Right. He wrote The Sweet Hereafter. Mm-hmm. Um, Two great films. Yeah, I, I love them both. And uh, and then he wrote one that um, has not been made into a film called uh, Continental Drift that is a very, very good book. But um, And he's written a number of other things, but those are the three things that I've read and the two movies that I've seen. Uh, Russell Banks often deals with, you know, the snow, the, the yeah. cold, frozen tundra, and we'll get to that with a companion film. Not that it's, a, not that it's based on his stuff, but... Um, but I think that this is tonally a lot closer to those where it is stripped down and it's about these people that are just doing this thing. They may not know 100% what they're doing or why they're doing it. Uh, they just know that they have to do it. And it's yeah. definitely an exploration of masculinity mm-hmm. to a certain extent um, and an exploration of you know the American dream. Uh, to a certain extent, or at least what it is to live in America from a financial standpoint and from a uh, male standpoint. And so based on that, it's not unlike affliction. It certainly is. It's very similar to continental drift in that uh, exploration. Uh, and so looking at it that way um, definitely helped me to uh, to appreciate the film more. Not that I think that the writer was inspired by uh, Russell Banks, but um, some it's, it's fascinating how a completely separate work of art can help you that came out, you know, that was released or whatever you want to say, um, years before can still help you appreciate this work of art. The two are not actually, uh, connected, right. But they're connected in my mind and, uh, and they both come out ahead as a result. Hmm. So, um, so yeah, uh, that that was kind of a weird tangent to to go on, just as far as other people's reaction to the film. Uh, as far as some of the specifics, um, the thing that people will talk about first is the acting yeah. of Hell or High Water, and understandably so. I think there's a lot of other things to talk about, which we will. But yes, the the acting specifically there are there are four main characters. Yeah, um, and I think the acting is marvelous on everybody's part. There are also a number of, you know, one and two scene characters that they interact with. And that, uh, all of that acting is great as yeah, well. Yeah, it really is. Um, but let's stick with the the, the big four right now. Um, and we'll, we'll start with Chris Pine, who is, um, his performance isn't bad. His performance is actually great. But the nature of his character right. is not very showy. Right. And so he gets he gets actually the least amount of press of any of these four guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and I understand why, but I also understand just how necessary his character and his, and that type of performance is. Yeah. Um, you know, he's a, a guy who is very quiet and his, and is very stoic and has clearly been trying to do things the right way his whole life. Right. Um, right. And is just kind of starting to bubble over, but not in a falling down type of way. Like he still keeps everything dialed in. Everything is, is inside. Yeah. Um, and so he's a character that, that I keep wanting to get a handle on, but he, but the character doesn't give you very much. That's not to speak about Chris Pine. He gives right. you as much right. As the character will allow him, which isn't actually that much. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I really like his performance, and just because people aren't really talking about him, that does not mean that his performance is not good. Right. It means it right. plays he he plays the role he needs to play in the larger, uh, in in the larger uh, tapestry of the film, or whatever right. you want right. to say. Um, so, uh, was there anything in in particular that struck you about Chris Pine? I think he might be. 
the character and and the actor i think are at their best in that last scene i agree with that and i think that what chris pine really brings to it along the way is um he is our empathetic anchor for the for the flip side of it he is uh for me the main reason we're not dealing with straightforward good guys and bad guys yeah um because uh you're empathetic for each of these four characters but i think chris pine is the one that I may be wrong, but I think Chris Pine is the character you need to empathize with for the story to work. Right. Because otherwise, that last scene will not go the way that you're wanting it to go, unless you deeply empathize with his condition and his predicament. Yeah. Um, And Chris Pine really brings that to the role. It is a bit in the... The relationship that he has with his brother, um, it's it's a bit in just the way he treats and interacts with people, um, like the waitress. Um, And so I think Chris Pine just really brings uh, a a general likable quality to him, uh, even though he does some bad things in the movie. Um, It's something that you, I didn't ever really feel like I didn't like him. I was always rooting for him. I'm sure when we talk about his brother, uh, there, there's some nuance to my feelings about his brother and where his brother's story goes. But, um, but for him, yeah, I just I, I agree with you that he's kind of the, if you want to call him the bedrock of this particular yeah. narrative. Um, I, I think he's the one that you really need to care about for the story to work, and he does that very well. Well, and it's a, it's an essential Western character. It's a Gary Cooper type, as opposed to a John Wayne or a Jimmy Stewart right, or, or right. Uh, Lee Marvin. Um, <laughs> right, and. And that's the thing is I'm sympathetic to him and his situation, but there are times when I so badly want him to be different, you know, as tends to happen with stoic characters. Um, there are times when it's like, no, don't do what you're doing or right. say more, say something. Right. This tight lipped thing is not going to be <laughs> helpful. Um, and so, uh, and then I think that's, that's, I was thinking about this with the Harry Potter movies, oddly <laughs> enough. Um, I'm often so deeply frustrated by the character of Harry, and I don't think it's a problem with the writing. I think it's the way this character is written, that he he lets other people dictate his actions so much. Right. Uh, like when his, when it, I don't know if you're, how familiar you are with Harry Potter, but, uh, Fully. In, okay. In Goblet of Fire, mm-hmm. when the, the goblet spits his name out. Right. Right. And everyone's just like, oh, what, what happened? And he, at no point does he say, I didn't do this. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I assure you. Yeah. And then when it's like, it's like, uh, Dumbledore says, ah, oh, the Goblet of Fire is a binding contract. And then Harry should say, Wow, that's unfortunate for me, I guess, having not put my name in. You know what I mean? And so uh, his life would be easier if he were the type that would speak up, but he's not. The nature of the life that he's lived Mm -hmm. sort of dictates that you don't talk too much because his aunt and uncle probably would have come down hard on him. And so he's more content to be passive, which for the chosen one is actually a really interesting idea. Hmm. And in that same way, and so it's, it's a, not necessarily a flaw, but it's a character nuance that, that at times can be frustrating to people that want to sympathize. Sure. sure. And that's definitely how I feel about the character of Toby played by Chris Pine. Mm -hmm. Um, Now the character of Tanner, played by Ben Foster, Hmm. who uh, is an actor I've always found interesting. I think I first became aware of him in the film Liberty Heights, um, which is a Barry uh, Levinson film. Uh, It's very good. Good cast all around. But um, and then, you know, 
I think he really, I, I what, what did I say? Hostage. I remember liking oh, him in yeah. hostage. He was a villain in that. Um, but, uh, but then movies like alpha dog. And then certainly I'd I'd say three ten to Yuma is what really set him apart. Um, mm-hmm. and he's, he's, turned out to be a very interesting character actor Um, because he actually is a fairly good looking guy. And so he could probably play full on lead roles, you know, boring lead roles. Um, But in a movie like this, you know, he shaves his hairline back, you know, Mm -hmm. he, he thins out his hair a little bit. He grows this, awful yeah. looking mustache and it looks like he put on a little bit of weight because he has a bit of a paunch like yeah. a bit yeah. of a, mm-hmm. there's a there's a character that drinks <laughs> yeah. um and when you see photos of the actor himself he definitely does not look like that right um, so right. he did change himself for this role mm-hmm. um and while that doesn't necessarily mean that that is not the beginning and end of his contribution to the role um but i do appreciate i always appreciate when a, a young dynamic good-looking actor is willing to put aside their own potential vanity because the character requires something else right right and so um with this character i think he also understands that this is a guy who's not super likable but is also charming in certain ways yeah and he seems like the the essence of a certain type of Southerner. And I've met them, mm-hmm. you know, I, when I lived in Southern Missouri, it's like, oh, okay, I've <laughs> seen this guy before, maybe not quite so lethal, yeah. but just the way he carries himself and the way he looks and the way he's chosen to look, you know, right. Right. Um, is, is feels so authentic to me. And while we've all seen the character of the brash older or younger brother, mm-hmm. um, and so when I first saw him on screen, I remember thinking like, oh, okay, here we go. Yeah, right, right, um, right. And then you also have, again, bits of on-the-nose dialogue that I've never responded to, which is like, and maybe maybe there's a Southern thing. Maybe you can respond to this. Uh, okay. Referring to your brother as, you know, big brother or little brother or something mm. like that instead of their names. Is that a thing in the South? Because um, I, I feel like that's when I hear it. I don't know that it's exclusive to the South, but it may be. I know I, I would hear it. I would hear it a lot, uh, baby brother, little brother, big yeah. brother. Yeah, I, I would, I would hear that pretty frequently among, among, uh, not necessarily my relatives, but uh, you know, like uh, I would, I even call my sister, you know, little sis, even though she's older, you know. Okay. So, so I do, I do think it's pro- perhaps a quality of, of growing up in the South. Um, yeah, and and I can understand. I can understand some of the uh, criticisms about some of the script dialogue. I will say about Ben Foster in general that I uh, have actually never cared for him. I've never had much to complain about. I think he's a very talented man and his talent is is obvious in the work that he chooses but i've never personally responded to him i even briefly met him one time when i was uh, working in hollywood and he was very nice how's he, he doing uh, <laughs> yeah he seems to be doing great okay. um but uh you know so so he you know he's he was nice there's no reason for me to dislike him i've just never really very strongly responded to anything that he's done uh, i first saw him in six feet under it's the first place i oh, recognized okay. him in and uh, so even in 310 to Yuma, which is a film that in my estimation of things is a bit overrated. It's a perfectly fine film, but I didn't respond to it with the, the glee that a lot of other people uh, seemed to or enjoyment. Um, but when I saw him in this, 
you've got Jeff Bridges and Chris Pine, two actors that I already very, very much love. My favorite thing about this movie is Ben Foster and yeah. his performance. He is outstanding in this, and I love what he brought to this role so much. Um, one of my one of my favorite lines. I don't think it's my favorite moment in the movie, but it's up there, maybe top three. I don't know why this struck me so hard, um, but when he has the altercation with the Native American in the, mm-hmm. in the casino, and uh, he says, you know, do you know what the word Comanche means? And he says, enemy of everyone. And then the way Ben Foster just has this, I don't really give a, you know, yeah. a, about anything. And then he's he's going forward to this guy, and he said, well, you know what, you know, he's uh, the name Comanche means enemy of everyone. And he's like, well, you know what that makes me? And and he was like, my enemy. And then uh, Ben Foster just looks at him and the look that he gets on his face yeah. affected me greatly when he was like, no, it makes me a Comanche. Yeah. And I was like, that he, he just understands this character yeah. and he knew what the role needed, the type of attitude he needed to have, the fact that he can't look his brother in the eye yeah. when he tells him he loves him. Little touches like that. Yeah. And I don't know how much of that is in the directing and how much of that Foster just brought to the role, but I think it's a bullseye in terms of a character. Well, it's, it's you know, I mentioned his charm earlier. Mm-hmm. There is, okay, so I had a, a friend who sadly passed away at this point 10 years ago, um, and he was a large man. Mm-hmm. He wore, he, he, he weighed like 350 pounds, 400 oh, wow. pounds at one yeah. point. Mm-hmm. Large man. Uh no one would ever look at that man and say, that's a, that's an attractive man who gets a lot of women. <laughs> he got a lot of women. Um, and the reason was because he had such a dynamic personality hmm. and he had such a sense of confidence. Hmm. And, uh, and as he would say, I can't say exactly how he would say it, but he's a charming guy. Um, <laughs> and, and it, it, it astonished me, but then I realized like, well, yeah, but I find myself as a person wanting to hang out with him and <laughs> wanting him to like me. Right. And it's right. like, that's, that's the mark of somebody that is charming. Right. And somebody that is dynamic. Um, and, and it's, he literally in, in not admittedly in the same way, but, uh, you know, he attracted me to him as he attracted anybody to him. Sure. Um, yeah. He was able to get away with a f- surprising amount in high school because he charmed the teachers. <laughs> wow. Um, and so it was very interesting, and and I was reminded vaguely of that character uh, of that guy when I watched Ben Foster's character. Hmm. This is a a, a guy who the, somebody with his level of energy, which which in the film often manifests itself negatively. Yeah, um, he uh, that level of energy isn't always going to be channeled in, into a negative thing. It can be positive. So there comes a moment when he's, you know, putting the moves on this hotel clerk and yeah. I believe he's then having sex with her shortly thereafter. Right. Right. Um, and while, yes, that might be something of a, of, of that might be a little easy at times. Um, this is a guy who's, who's probably done pretty well with, with the ladies and has had a number and has probably had a lot of friends. Yeah. Um, but maybe as he's gotten older and become a bit more extreme, his life has become a bit more isolated because maybe he's driven some people away, but he yeah. still has the, these personal resources that he can draw from. Sure. And yeah, I think you, I think you nailed it. I think Ben Foster, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he based this character on someone he knew because he mm. seemed and someone he liked. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
because he definitely seems to sympathize with and understand this character. Yeah. Um, and there needs to be seeds of likability and extreme unlikability. Um, right. Cause he right. does something at the end that is deeply frustrating and, sure. and, and angering. Sure. Yeah. Um, and, in, and in doing so he sort of, the character reasserts the, some of the themes or at least reminds the audience that no, there actually are bad guys here. Mm, um, right. They might not be the worst guys, but they're not doing good things either. Yeah, it's true. So, um, so we'll move on to Gil Birmingham mm, mm-hmm. as Alberto Parker, who plays Jeff Bridges' partner. Uh, I love this guy. Um, yeah. I first, I mean, I've seen him in a number of things. Uh, he's been getting he's been getting a lot of work lately, which mm. is kind of awesome. Um, I, he played uh, in in. Uh, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. He plays. Oh, I haven't um, seen that show. My wife has, but I haven't seen it yet. He plays Jane Krakowski's uh, father. Oh, okay. Um, and Jane Krakowski is a. Uh, she's actually Native American, but she dyes her hair. She puts contact lenses in, and that sort of thing. <laughs> and so, um, and there's a thing that he does that I usually find cheap. Uh, it's not him. It's the the writing, but I usually find cheap. But he manages to sell it. Hmm. Um, where he's taught, you know, cause he's a native American and his wife is native American and they're talking to their daughter. And at one point he makes reference to an airplane as like the metal bird in the sky or whatever <laughs> it is. And then he pauses for a moment and he says, I'm kidding. I know what planes are. I was in the air force, <laughs> you know, and he just says it with this very, uh, deadpan quality. Um, and then he was also in, uh, uh, house of cards. Oh, another um, show I haven't seen. Yeah. And it's, he, he just, I don't know. It, he he's an actor that I've found to be very dependable. And mm-hmm. when I saw when I saw that he would be the 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 partner in this film, I thought like, okay, fourth banana probably isn't going to be given much. He mm-hmm. he'll be sort of just the foil or maybe the straight man to um, Jeff Bridges like right, goofy right. character. Uh, but no, this is a character that is fully fleshed out. Yeah. Um, and is and is allowed some of his moments. Um, there's a, a very particular moment, and I could see and. Moment, and scenes like this are probably why people say that the script is a bit on the nose where he is talking about the 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 way things have changed um, right but how they how things are also kind of cyclical that stuff is always being taken away from people and it started with his with his people yeah mm-hmm. um and that scene i think is actually very well written it doesn't i don't think that it's on the nose because it's the kind of conversation that two old friends would have while they're bored and waiting for something sure and the nate and the details of this particular case do seem to resonate to a certain degree right um with the character and so i think he's i think he's funny i think he's confident he definitely seems like he's been a cop for a long time right uh, i think it's a marvelous performance um yeah. And honestly, okay, so uh, spoilers, everyone. I mean, it's it's assumed at this point, but um, that it is vital that that character be fully fleshed out. So when he is eventually killed quickly and abruptly, oh yeah, mm-hmm. it means something. Yeah, um, to the point where even if they had given his death more weight visually, where there's like slow motion or something like that, right? Um, right. There's some like the way the film deals with violence, it's a very matter of fact thing. And there's this, it makes it more tragic because 
you know, in movies, you can give somebody's death its due and you can try to let the emotional weight impact uh, the way you're making the film. But David McKenzie just says, nope, uh, lives are over in the blink of an eye when you've got when you're shooting people. Yeah. And this is a guy who is who we've gotten to know. And then he's gone in a flash. He's gone in the midst of Jeff Bridges making another joke at him. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's and then he's just and it's done yeah and it's so and it's it's infuriating that's that's one of the things that i think is uh, one of a handful of things that i think is really brilliant about this narrative and about this story is the way we feel as an audience when he dies mm-hmm. is ex- is almost exactly the way jeff bridges feels yeah that oh this was not supposed to happen that's not that's not the character that's going to die. Like that's yeah. not the one, you know, maybe Jeff Bridges was going to get shot. Yeah. Maybe somebody else, but, but not this guy, this guy yeah. has been just so steady throughout the entire film. He's a good guy. He's a, he's a good cop. Yeah. And he just, he, he's, he's done nothing to deserve this. No, certainly. No. And you know, to quote another brilliant and probably overly quoted Western deserves often got nothing to do with it. Yeah. But it's uh it's something that when, when he goes, I remember distinctly feeling, and some of it is in Jeff Bridges' performance because he's obviously an immensely talented actor, mm-hmm. one of the one of the legends at this point. Um, but something of it is in his performance. But I think just the way it's directed, the way it's scripted, something about when that character dies, I felt exactly what Jeff Bridges was feeling. Yeah. Like, like you said, it's in the middle of him making one more crack at him. There was nothing, not a moment in Jeff Bridges' entire time in this film when he ever thought he would outlive this guy. Yeah. Ever thought. He even made comments about it throughout the run of the of the of the story that he, you know, that this guy is going to be doing things to his grave and, yeah. you know, and it's just something that I found really compelling because at that point when you've structured your story that way and you execute a moment like that, you don't need the theatrics. Yeah. You don't need the the slow motion. You don't need the techniques. You don't need anything like that. It's just, this is how things are. And it's, it, it was very savvy on McKenzie's part, Taylor Sheridan, the writer, like every, everything that went into that moment is very, very effective was for me. Um, and it, and it's part of why, uh, on top of just Birmingham's performance is part of why that character is so memorable. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, it, it was really astonishing that they made that choice for that story. Yeah, uh, one thing that is, that is, it's it's an intangible quality to uh, certain performances. Uh, when you are paired with somebody, it could be in a marriage, it could be brothers, it could be partners, whatever it is. Uh, when you're paired with someone, and it's and it's assumed that you're that these characters have been together in this capacity for quite a while. Yeah, the actors need to have a very specific type of chemistry, a very casual familiarity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if there were a movie made of my life, then the actors playing me and Jen mm-hmm. would need a very specific type of familiarity. Right. Um, right. You would need to believe that they had been married for however many years, and. With these characters, you need to believe that they've been partners for a long time and that they have a shorthand. They have a very specific type of joking with one another. Uh, And that requires both actors um, to just be at ease with Mm -hmm. themselves and with the job they're doing. They've done this job, you know, jobs like this a million times. This is just one more. This is not the one where one of them is going to die. This (laughs) is just one more. Right. and so uh, let's go ahead and pivot over to Jeff Bridges, uh, who has the showiest part in the film and, yeah. and 
he is the one that is getting talked about for um, awards and that sort of thing for best yeah. supporting actor, which I think is a bummer because I think Ben Foster actually uh, might be. It's not that he's necessarily doing anything better. It's just that we've seen this type of thing from Jeff Bridges before. Yeah, right. With you know something like uh, True Grit. Mm-hmm. Now I think that that he he takes that. And layers on other things with this character and makes him distinct and unique. Um, but uh, but Ben Foster, I think, is doing stuff that we haven't necessarily seen before. Not that that necessarily matters. I don't know. It's tough. I go back and forth. It's just, you know, Jimmy Stewart tended not to throw us too much for a loop. Um, right. But does that, you know, but he's still <laughs> right. a, a tremendous actor. And so uh, Jeff Bridges, I don't want to speak poorly of his performance because to me it's in the it's in the moments of silence. It's in the looks that he's giving in the midst of making jokes, in the midst right. of right. that sort of thing. And the fact that we're allowed a few moments with him as we see that he is desperately lonely, that he's retiring and does not want to because yeah. what else does he have? Right. You know, when he's talking about his own grave and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. This is a guy who clearly has the end on his mind and he clearly doesn't know what he's going to do between now and then. Right. Right. And, you know, and what I do like is that, uh, is a character that's sort of wise cracking and stuff. When you actually see that they are very, um, very good at their jobs and that's sort of what allows them to to be wisecracking because this has become such an instinct at this point yeah that uh it doesn't they don't need to be completely focused all the time because they or they don't need to make themselves focused they just naturally are hmm. um and so i don't know I, i'm sort of reminded of in a very strange way i'm sort of reminded of francis mcdormand in fargo oh. where there's so many other elements about her but you realize oh no she's actually a really good detective mm-hmm. um and he is a very very good detective mm-hmm. um and and there's also just the way that he carries himself and the type of facial air he has and the way he's dressed uh that he does seem like a small town sheriff more so even, but like an old timey one. Right. You right. Know? More so even than somebody like a Tommy Lee Jones in no country for old men. Uh, this is a guy who is, who's, who's taken down some, some bad people, but for the most part, his life is probably pretty boring. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he's, he's fairly, I'll go ahead and use the word complacent maybe. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's a very lived-in performance. It's a very confident performance, and it's one that. So I I received the film on Blu-ray for Christmas, and I have not gotten a chance to watch it yet because this time of year I need to devote time to movies that I haven't seen. <laughs> right. Um, but I can't wait to rewatch it, and I'm excited to watch it for every possible reason. But I'm I'm actually excited to see Jeff Bridges' performance again because now that I know what I'm getting, uh. I'm looking for the 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 moments that he layers on that are unexpected. Right, right. So uh, now to move on to a couple other things. Um, I do like this script quite a bit. Um, as we said, it might be a little bit on the nose at times, but I think it's on the nose in a way that makes sense sure. um, for who these characters are. Uh, what do you think as far as... Because there are movies that have been made about the current economic situation. Right. Um, what do you think about that aspect of it? And the idea of these guys rebelling against 
the banks and rebelling against the modern situation and that sort of thing. I think what well, it was funny because when I, I'll be honest that when I initially realized that that was what this film was really about, this was also a film, even though I saw it in the theater, that I had not seen much and not known much about besides the cast. So when I realized, oh, this is going to be an element of the oppressed uh, lower middle class not being able to get a, a, a leg up financially and, and so then making these very dramatic decisions to try to alter that course of things for themselves. Um, I, I'll admit a bit of a momentary checking out where I was like, oh, okay, I've, I've seen this before. I know this. This is something that I feel like this general theme is it might be as universal as storytelling itself that oh, just okay. that 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 there is that there are people who at least in their own perspectives and maybe objectively try very hard to do the right thing and mm -hmm. cannot get ahead yeah through no genuine fault of their own in terms of they didn't you know it's not that they're less intelligent than anyone else it's not that they are less hardworking than anyone else it's just simply the circumstances in the if you want to use the metaphor the the hand that they were dealt yeah. is such that they that they they can't quite get a foothold on moving forward in what they in what they want and i feel like that that story is uh just immensely old i think it's cross-cultural i think yeah. every everyone's gonna have that experience of, hey, I am generally, not, I'm not talking about like good people versus bad people, I'm talking about people who generally feel like they are trying to do the right thing or trying to do something good. That's not working for them. Yeah. So maybe I give this not trying to do the right thing a shot. Right. Maybe I give this doing the deliberate wrong thing yeah. a shot. Um, and so in that estimation to me i see a story like hell or high water i realize that that's what this story is going to be about almost immediately that element slips to the background for me and then it's about okay well who are these people right and what happens in this story and that's what usually makes the film either or the or the book or the story whatever i'm hearing or reading or watching that's what will elevate it or cause it to just get lost in the ocean of the rest of the stories like that well and that's the i think that's the thing is that um if the film was out to make a large statement about this thing, mm -hmm. then I think, uh, who cares? Right. You right. know, um, but I think Taylor Sheridan realizes, well, at the heart of any story like that, somebody rebelling against the system or whatever it is, right. at the heart of that is the person making the choice to do that. Mm -hmm. And how does somebody arrive at that choice? Right. Um, Here's something that I'll say that I wasn't expecting to say, but I've only I only started thinking about it a few minutes ago. Um, and listeners, bear with me. Going to get a little bit political. Um, although, based on the most recent more than one lesson survey, apparently you're okay with that. <laughs> uh, just as long as just as long as I don't do any episodes that are pure religion and not movies at all, because <laughs> apparently you don't want that. Uh, so, note to self. Um, so. In between the release of this movie and the conversation you and I are having now, mm -hmm. there was a presidential election in which yeah. a very unlikely candidate won <laughs> right. based, what, uh, based on what many people say was the vote of working class, mm -hmm. disaffected white men right. in the Rust Belt, yeah. mm -hmm. Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, all states that normally go 
Democrat. They certainly went right. for Obama, but they went for somebody else this time. And when you look at the nature of the characters of Hell or High Water, specifically mm-hmm. two brothers, yeah, these are guys who feel like this. They feel like the system is not out. It's is right. not for them. It's right. for somebody else. And somebody could say that, oh, these white guys, the system's been out, has been for them for a long time. Okay, that's fine if you want to think that. But much like what we're talking about as far as the f- these types of films, you can either look at the larger points and you can look at larger demographics and you can look at larger situations or you can look at these specific people. Right. Rather than, you know, a lot of people said that this is one of the reasons that Hillary Clinton lost to Donald Trump. Again, yes, I recognize there's the popular vote versus the electoral college, but he was able to appeal to a wider range of states. Right. um, Including states that normally go Democrat. Mm -hmm. Why? One of the arguments is that the Democrats were so busy on, if you'll pardon me, identity politics and the nature of identity politics is such that they don't care who you are, only what you look like. Right. Are you a woman? Are you a man? Are you gay? Are you straight? Are you Christian? Are you Muslim? Are you atheist? Whatever. And so if you're a white guy, well, we don't, you know, you are responsible for the patriarchy. So we don't really care about you. Meanwhile, there's tons of them saying, uh, wait a second. Right. I'm in a really bad spot financially Mm -hmm. and you don't seem to care Mm-hmm. because you're not seeing me as an individual. You only, you're only seeing what I look like. Yeah. And so you look at that and you look at the characters in hell or high water and that frustration that they've just been completely left behind. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could either look at them as entitled white guys who, Oh, for the, for once in their life, they're, you know, behind the eight ball. And it's like, no characters like this, regardless of their race, mm-hmm. They, they've, as you said, they've been trying to do things right their whole life and they just haven't gotten ahead. And in fact, they might get screwed over more because they are right. doing things the right way. Yeah. And large institutions, whether they be banks or the government or whatever it is, they are given carte blanche to do whatever they want, often on the backs of these types of characters. Yeah, there is a uh, there's a sermon that was uh, I read it because it was collected in a, a collection by a minister named Frederick Beekner. He's also a novelist, a, a Pulitzer, I think contender, but um, he wrote a sermon. So did uh, he, so you're saying he, he lost? Yes. Unfortunately. And why are you lost. quoting him? I know, right? Um, there's a, there's a sermon that he wrote called the magnificent defeat. And it's about Jacob, Jacob Mm -hmm. uh, wrestling with uh, the angel. Um, But earlier he references when Jacob cheated Esau out of his birthright. Yeah. And when he did that, the the thing that Frederick Buechner wrote in his sermon that took me back, and I was not prepared to mention this, so I'm probably not quoting it verbatim. In fact, I know I'm not quoting it verbatim, but the general idea is, yeah, honesty may be the best policy, but we need to be truthful about the fact that sometimes dishonesty can be very effective. Yes. And that sometimes dishonesty can get you where you want to go. And I know that that may seem even, you know, even in a conversation like this or on a show like this, that may seem like a taboo thing to even acknowledge. But you look at something like, uh, we've mentioned this a couple of times on uh, The Fear of God talking about how uh, we, we referenced it. I don't know exactly where this is going to play in terms of what episodes of ours have come out and what episodes this will play in. But we had a conversation about the film Let Me In. And one of the things that we said in that conversation is 
when the people who are supposed to be having your back aren't coming through for you, something else will offer to come in and right. to come through for you. In the film Let Me In, uh, you know, the the people who are supposed to be supporting him and are supposed to be standing up for him don't do that. So he turns to a monster. Yeah. And I'm not equating. We don't we we're careful with this in the episode, which is, I think this is going to air before our Fear of God episode airs, but we're careful to distinguish we're not calling anybody a monster or anything, but we we are identifying and I'm identifying here that Certain things that you normally would care about and would normally yeah. be a consideration stop being a consideration when another need goes un, unresolved or that need remains for an extended period of time. And then you feel unrepresented by the things that you're supposed to be right. represented by, supposed to be stood up for, and that's not happening. And I think that's definitely an element of what happened in the election is that people were just desperate for a change. They're desperate yeah. to have... To, to feel like somebody was going to and and you would hear people say that they're not even totally sure he's going to do that right but they just knew she wouldn't and they they knew nobody else on the on the in the arena was going to have their back and they they took a chance you know yeah if they felt disenfranchised from the last 8 years right well President Obama himself said that this will be a continuation. This will be my third term. Right. And so all the more it's like it'll be my third term, but with someone less dynamic and likable (laughs) and and less able to communicate. Sure. Sure. Um, And with a little more baggage. (laughs) It was a little. Yeah. Uh, Oh, yeah. And someone who was investigated by the FBI, regardless of how that turned out, still not the best thing. Sure. Sure. Um, And so, yeah. uh, Yeah, I definitely know what you mean. There's this feeling of. I did everything the right way and look where it got me. Right. Mm -hmm. And so in a culture like American culture where it is results oriented, Mm -hmm. doing good for its own sake, unless you have, if you'll pardon me, unless you have a deeper foundation of morality. Right. Um, which incidentally, I guess, is sort of the nature of Cormac McCarthy's The Road. Mm-hmm. Um, unless you have this deeper foundation of morality and do and just doing the right thing for its own sake, then why wouldn't you get rid of it when you realize this is not working? So what's interesting is that Hell or High Water has just become more relevant since it came out. It was already dealing with certain economic things, but the idea of these characters lashing out Mm -hmm. uh, against the system that they feel betrayed them or at least never had their back um, is something that I don't know. It's at this point, I'm, I'm (laughs) so many people are, are, I was, I was recording with David and he said that at this point he sees every movie through the lens of the election. (laughs) Uh, Not because it's hard not to do in some cases, because you know, movies that were made in the last year or so um, were made with you know the same national mood that allowed a Donald Trump to be elected um and or they're directly about that and right. so uh so i i definitely um am kind of there with him uh and so the the current political situation and listeners i do apologize i i'm i'm trying not to specifically uh rag on Donald Trump i've certainly done that elsewhere um I'm actually just trying to talk about like, this was such a surprise and sure. you would never, you would normally not think of him as a viable candidate. Oh, right, uh, certainly right. enough people didn't. But, uh, so I'm trying to talk about like what might have inspired, uh, his election. So, uh, please don't think that I'm, that I'm being uh, insulting, even though I did not vote for him and would never have voted for him. Right. Right. Um, 
so, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, I feel like it's such a jarring thing that I myself am having a hard time not seeing the election or at least the, the current climate, um, in everything. I rewatched hateful eight and I saw, uh, yeah, I saw yeah. so much of this conversation being had specifically in the Walton Goggins character. Yeah. Um, like go back and rewatch that in light of the election, in light of the racial discussions that have been had and in light of what we know, as we were talking about here about, um, you know, under, uh, lower class white men and their feeling of being brushed aside you know, and listen to what Walton Goggins says specifically yeah. about his father. Hmm. Um, it's very, very interesting. Hmm. Um, and then look at the note that the film ends on. So right. it's, there's, there's some very interesting things going on, uh, culturally, either consciously or unconsciously. Um, and so I would encourage people, uh, you might not want to think about the election, which is fine, but, um, but I, I would encourage people to, you know, movies they watch that were made in 2016 or that are going to be made in the next year or four yeah. next year, or especially. Eight. Right, right. Um, what's, what's going to be a problem is when people start making movies about this, yeah, they're going to yeah. be awful. Yeah. They're going to be heavy handed and yeah. really self-righteous, which is why something like hell or high water is so valuable. Oh, absolutely. Something like hateful eight is so valuable. Something like killing them softly is so valuable mm -hmm. because they are genre films. Right. And right. so they have a responsibility to that genre first and within that. And as long as they accomplish that, the audience can forgive almost anything else. And what's more is if you're being true to that, then you're not going to overplay it because you'll do, you'll engage in whatever the characters want to engage in. Sure. If you, you know, you will know when you're shoving lines in their mouths that they would not say, yeah. um, which is why, you know, that scene where, uh, Alberto is talking about, you know, his people and land being taken away from his people before it was now being taken away from like white men. Uh, that felt real to me. It mm. felt like the character would say that. It felt like at this particular moment in the film, he would think this. Yeah. Um, if he had said it earlier, it would have seemed more on the nose and shoehorned in. Mm. But by that time, it felt earned. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, that aspect of, of Hell or High Water is something I found interesting. And we've actually delved into certain ideas that we'll be talking about with the, the companion film. Um, but the last thing I want to talk about, I think this, uh, I think the film is beautifully shot. Mm -hmm. Um, it's not overly poetic in, um, in how the camera is moving, but it's not purely functional either. Sure. Uh, and then lastly, I do really enjoy the score by yeah, Nick yeah. Cave and who's it? Warren Ellis. Yeah. Um, they did the music for assassination of Jesse James. This is not as good. And the proposition, yeah. this is not as good as, uh, certainly not as good as the assassination of Jesse James score, but then what is, <laughs> um, I some website, I don't remember what it was, but some website put out like the best musical scores of the new millennium. I think I saw that. Yeah. yeah. And number one was assassination of Jesse James. Mm, yeah. So, um, so I'm like, oh, okay. Um, Nick Cave's a brilliant artist. He I mean, really is. You know, I um, mean, Warren Ellis too, but Nick Cave is the musician pairing of that, of that two of them. And, and yeah, it's, he's, he's brilliant. Well, and he wrote the proposition. He wrote the screenplay, yeah. which mm -hmm. I find fascinating, but, um, but yeah, and he's a guy who 
it just feels right that he would be either musically or, you know, uh, literarily, literarily, does that work? Well, yeah, I, I, I don't believe it is, but let's go with it. We'll, we'll go with it. Yeah. Um, Hey, I'm not a writer. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm no Nick Cave, uh, but that he has become something of a voice of the modern day Western hmm. with this proposition, assassination of Jesse James, like a lot of what Westerns have been in the last 10 years are informed in some capacity by Nick Cave. Yeah. I recognize that music isn't, you know, isn't this, it's not cinematography. It's not the screenplay, but music is, I mean, Psycho wouldn't be Psycho. Jaws right. wouldn't be Jaws. Right. Star Wars wouldn't be Star Wars without the music. And, Absolutely. And these movies, you know, these movies have tremendous, stark, melancholy, beautiful, sad music. Right. And uh, and I was listening to the score for Hell or High Water the other day, and mm. indeed, it was. It, it's it is not as hauntingly beautiful as Assassination of Jesse James, but it is still um, a very solid score. Um, so let's go ahead and move into uh, the companion film, sure. which was your choice. Ah. I, I didn't leave it up to you, but I was having a hard time thinking what I would do. Mm -hmm. And you wound up picking Sam Raimi's 1998 film, A Simple Plan, mm -hmm. which is a film I love. And the minute yeah. you said it, I thought that is perfect. Mm, yeah. um, it works really well for listeners that haven't seen it. Seek it out. It is an incredibly oh, yeah. suspenseful film. It is a remarkably heartbreaking film, and it's a film that works at times almost too well yeah. with with Hell or High Water. Yeah, but it is distinct enough. The story is is distinct because these guys aren't necessarily making as dramatic a choice as the characters from Hell or High Water. Right. These are right. just guys who stumble on a crashed plane that is full of money. Mm -hmm. And so they decide, okay, we're going to hide this money. We're going to hold on to it for a year, see what happens. And then we're going to divvy it up and we're all leaving town. A simple, simple plan. <laughs> um, but obviously, you know, there's that old, I think it's a Ben Franklin adage that uh, three men can keep a secret if two of them are dead. Oh yes. Um, I think you're right. And so there's very much that element. And so the things that they then have to do mm -hmm. uh, in order to keep this a secret yeah. uh, becomes increasingly worse and worse. And it has, I think it's probably one of Bill Paxton's best performances. I think yeah. he does some yeah. really good stuff. Mm -hmm. um, Bridget Fonda as the Lady Macbeth type, <laughs> who is only revealed to the, be that over time. Yeah. Uh, and then Billy Bob Thornton. Um, and he's maybe great. his best performance. Yeah, see, he's wonderful in that. And and one of the things that about Billy Bob Thornton, just briefly, is that I he's sort of become pigeonholed as this, you know, kind of uh, he's he's not always an alcoholic, but I think Bad Santa, the Bad News Bears thing. Yeah. It's like he, you know, he's kind of been pigeonholed as this grumpy old man. And you look at some of his earlier works, Sling Blade, and this, and um, I think even in Bandits, he he plays a sort of a, a slightly different type of character. Certainly, um, but. Uh, Early on, he definitely was had a broader range than what he typically tends to get work doing. Now, yeah. I've always been impressed by him. Um, I'm immensely impressed by him in this because he's so uh, just feeble as, yeah. a, as a human being in A Simple Plan. And Billy Bob Thornton, in most of his most recent roles, you would definitely not describe him as feeble. Yeah. Um, he's, he's very overtly sort of brash and, and uh, aggressive. But in this... He's, uh, yeah, I just cannot express the love and affection I have for A Simple Plan. We'd have to devote a whole episode to it because yeah. I, I agree with you. I think it is utterly brilliant. 
Every time I see it, I love it all the more. It like it like raises star ratings every single time I see yeah. it. Um, and it doesn't matter the distance that I put behind it or how familiar I am with the plot. It's just such an exceptional movie. And couldn't feel less like a Sam Raimi film, like like an Evil Dead or uh, right. you know. I mean, like it's it, it, he's known for horror. It doesn't even have some of his stylistic tropes, like yeah. the fast camera pace yeah. and you know and everything. It's it's a very understated kind of well, and I'm not trying to be punny. It is a very, it's a very simple and direct narrative yeah. that the people in that movie, like in Hell or High, like in Hell or High Water, the narrative could probably be summed up with a sentence or two. But it's the people in it who are yeah. so complicated, and that's what makes it so continually interesting. Is that the people themselves are very complex, and the decisions they make and the motivations you can understand why they're doing what they're doing. But they are complicating things for themselves, and we may have the you know. I mean, I, I'm sincerely like this is, feels bad because I'm not trying to be punny, but we can have all of the the the, the simplest. Ideals, simplest plans, simplest goals, uh, but we are complicated, yeah. and trying to execute even the simplest of things can get very complicated where people are involved. I thought also with a simple plan, and maybe it plays in not quite as much to hell or high water, but simple plan also makes me think of of mice and men. Sure, you know of uh, you know, and that's where that the name of that story comes from is the best laid plans of yeah. mice and men, and it's something that. I think when we when we're looking at hell or high water and how it's dealing with the idea of economic disparity, social disparity, um, what uh, Gil Birmingham's character Alberto talks about the cyclical nature of taking and yeah. and, and everything like that, it makes me think of the fact that we can set forth our goals. Where do we see ourselves in five years? Where do we see yeah. ourselves in ten years? What do we want out of life? But the simple fact is the the element, the factor that we depend on too much and never really factor in is ourselves yeah, and our own capacity to entwine and complicate things simply simply because we are not simple creatures. We're just not. And, you know, the, the film also uh, – I don't talk enough about movie titles. Mm. Um, and I know it's based on a book, but still. Um, sure the importance of a movie title to contextualize mm. um, the story that you're seeing. Um, I think often we will see a movie, it, it has a title and it's like, yeah, all right. Right. And it's like, well, you got to call it something. Mm -hmm. Right. And, but honestly, there are movies like a simple plan, which the title seems very straightforward in some ways, but there's just this element of, that title is in your mind as you watch it. And so yeah. as things get complicated, like more and more complicated, you, the viewer kind of despair over like, no, this was supposed to be simple. Mm -hmm. Nobody ever says the term simple plan. No, uh, it's, it's, it's us. It's in our mind as we watch this thing, just unravel more and more. Um, and I would say that there's, there's no Sam Raimi hallmarks except that there is, the film officially is not a horror movie, but there is so much dread and so much suspense. Yes. Definitely. And certain imagery like the crows and stuff like that. And the, the presence of Danny Elfman's music, which is particularly beautiful. I think yeah. the score in that is, is him doing some new things. Yeah. Um, oh, definitely for him. But, uh, 
I think there's enough Sam Raimi in there. And I think the fact that the film is also darkly funny. There is a lot of humor often right after something terrible has happened, often right before something terrible has happened. Right. Right. Um, and so it's, uh, it's a film that is, I would say perfect. I think the film is perfect. I'm not going to disagree with you. (laughs) Um, and as I've said elsewhere, when a film is perfect, I often find it a little cold. Um, but in this case, it's perfect precisely because it is a wonderful suspense film. And, and it's the suspense, as you said, comes from characters messing up. That's yeah. what it's going to be. Yeah. Uh, you know, so I, I would say the film's not necessarily a noir, but it definitely has noir elements to it. Yeah, I agree. Um, and so, yeah, listeners, if you haven't seen it, I, and I think we haven't, we haven't given too much of it away, which is nice, but, no. hmm. um, I, I guess what I'll say is at some point someone dies so that this secret can be kept. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but yeah, uh, go and watch it. I think you will enjoy it. Uh, be ready. Cause it is a harrowing film. Yeah. Uh, you will feel wrung out by the end yeah. because the ending, the real ending, uh, the, the climax is one that is heartbreaking. It, it truly is tragic yeah. and, and emotionally devastating. Yes. When it, when it all, when it all comes to fruition, uh, it, this is will not give away any specific plot points, um, but there's such a profound element of futility yeah. to everything that has happened that it is it is emotionally devastating. Yeah. yeah. So okay, uh, now real quick, I will say a simple plan was nominated for best supporting actor for Billy Bob Thornton and best adapted screenplay. Hmm. Um, trying to think if I think Billy Bob Sh- Thornton should have won. That was a good year for supporting actor. I'll oh. list them off for you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I never have these. Uh, the winner was James Coburn for Affliction. Oh, okay. Also nominated was Robert Duvall for a Civil Action, which is a performance wow. I love. Yeah. Jeffrey Rush in. Shakespeare in Love was delightful. Oh, wow. Uh, Ed Harris in The Truman Show. Wow. Good that is roster. Good mm-hmm. And James Coburn does a great job. Sure, sure. And I'm a huge fan of Robert Duvall and what he chooses not to do in his right. performance. But if I'm being honest with myself, I think probably Billy Bob Thornton deserved to win. Yeah, I because think I agree with you. It's hard because the character is a bit dim. Mm-hmm. Um, and Billy Bob, Billy Bob Thornton is a guy who I think is very intelligent. Uh, certainly. But I think he recognizes this is the accent I have. This is the way I look. I can use that. Mm-hmm. And and he, the fact that he's able to drop his intelligence, but also have, I don't know, have the character be endearing. Yeah. Because usually, but if a character is as unintelligent as the character Jacob in A Simple Plan, it's very easy for viewers to be like oh can we just kill this guy he's the problem right um but this is a guy whose side we are on we we want good things for him absolutely and uh, we it's so easy it would have been easy for a lesser actor to simply play dim and feeble but thornton brings to that character he brings someone who's is dim and is feeble, but is persistently trying not to be. 
yeah. trying to be savvy, yeah. trying to be smart, trying to do what he thinks is called upon him yeah. to do in that moment. And that's a much more nuanced portrayal than lesser actors would have necessarily brought to yeah. it, where they would have just played feeble-minded. Yeah, they either would have overplayed sympathy yeah. or overplayed dumb and honestly at that point judging the character right, right. Uh, and before we move on i do want to say there were three men that found that plane we focus on bill pax and we certainly focus on billy bob thornton brent briscoe yes yeah. as lou he's exceptional is a key element of this film yeah it really is and because honestly lou is a guy that i feel like i've met before um yeah. in southern missouri specifically uh, mm -hmm. but also in denver just a guy who is I'd say underemployed, if not straight up unemployed, um, but is upbeat and, and wants good things for his friends, probably sure, drinks yeah. too much. Um, but he's, he can be a, a charming guy as well. You know, yeah. one thinks that actually if the character Tanner from uh, hell or high water lived a little longer, mm, um, might be a spoilers, uh, <laughs> yeah, that true. he would turn into Lou. Yeah. Um, you know, that he, that his paunch would grow, not that Lou's like a, a super big guy, but like that drinking and, and just hanging out and carousing would overtake any other ambition. Sure. Sure. Um, and Brent Briscoe is an actor who it bummed me out that people, that he didn't get more work. He, he still gets plenty of work. He's, mm. he's acted in a number of things, but, um, but this is probably the most high profile thing he's ever acted in. And, oh, um, and his his is heartbreaking as well. Like there's yeah, really there's is. and there's definitely a mo there's definitely an element of in him of real resentment. Yeah, uh, you know there's a part where he is he is pleading, and it's a really sad, pathetic kind of pleading yeah. where he's talking to Jacob. Uh, uh, he's talking to Billy Bob Thornton about Bill Paxton. Mm -hmm. Bill Paxton has a job. He has yeah. a wife. He has a kid, and he's and he went to college. Mm -hmm. And so there's there's an element where uh, Lou is talking to Jacob and he says, we're the ones that need that money. He just wants it. Right. But you know what? The, what I just said is inherently argumentative mm. and it is argumentative, but when, but the pleading in his voice, when he says, we, and I'm, I'm going to try and emulate it. It's going to be terrible, but it's like, we're the ones that need that money. Like he's, right, he's right. desperate. He really in is. In that moment. And then it turns to anger when he says, he just wants it. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's really sad at times. Mm -hmm. And there's another moment again, it's, it, this is in the reading where he goes to, to Hank who's, who's holding the money and he's saying, I need some, he goes, he's like, he goes, I'm broke Hank. And then there's this moment he goes, and I owe people money. Yeah. And and he yeah. says it like, I owe bad people money yeah. and yeah. that's no good. Yeah, and, and it's just, it's, it's a very, it's a very, weighty performance and it's and it's key it is a key performance to this film it is yeah, primarily about the two brothers and the and uh, bridget fonda but lou is so important as as a uh, a stick of dynamite because he's yeah. unpredictable mm -hmm. because he is because he's desperate he's more yeah. desperate than the other guys yeah, absolutely um and he's more volatile uh, in the same way that Tanner is volatile. He is what's going to make things go bad. Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, so yeah, I, I wanted to spend some time. Uh, I was thinking of actually reaching out to Brent Briscoe oh, really? uh, on uh, like Facebook or through, uh, through his publicist or something like sure, that. Sure. Sure. Um, 
But uh, he actually uh, was very briefly in uh, The Dark Knight Rises. Uh, oh. he, he is the cop who, because Batman's been gone for a long time. Right, right. And then everyone suddenly yes. sees the, the Batmobile, and he's the cop who says, oh, you're going to get a show now. Like, yeah. He, that's, that's, that's the part he has started to play, is like just these one or two line characters. And it, gotcha. is, it is too bad. I'd like to yeah. see him get something uh get something as substantial as as a simple plan sure um okay so we're going to delve into the theme now and i'm reluctant to do so because we're going to be talking about money and people know that you know the love of money is the root of all evil blah 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 probably shouldn't say that <laughs> uh, but what i mean to say is like we've heard that before yeah uh and i have a number of verses here about not idolizing money mm-hmm. because I, because I think there is a difference between greed. I don't think the characters in the simple plan are greedy. No, uh, they are faced with a large amount of money, certainly, but I don't think they're greedy. Um, and then, uh, hell or high water. I think those characters feel backed into a corner. I don't think their plan is, aha, we're going to live in mansions. No, it's more just, we're going to hold on to what's ours. Right. And I don't think it's a greed thing, but so, some of these verses could be seen as being about greed, um, but I think it's about something deeper than that. So we're gonna we're gonna sort of rattle these off, and there are a few of them. Uh, first, Hebrews thirteen five: Keep your lives free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, because God has said, "Never will I leave you; never will I forsake you." Uh, Psalm thirty seven verses seven through nine. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. I'll let you take the next one. Psalm thirty-seven, sixteen: Better the little that the righteous have than the wealth of many wicked. For the power of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. And lastly, Proverbs 23, verses 4 through 5. Do not wear yourself out to get rich. Do not trust your own cleverness. Cast but a glance at riches, and they are gone, for they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. All right. First off, uh, I wasn't aware of some of these verses. Mm, Um, You know, um, that last one, the idea that riches will just leave you. Slid away, um, right. Is something I found interesting. But uh, so... Stuff like, uh, let's see, be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. I'll go ahead and say, uh, easy for you to say, (laughs) you know, um, Mm -hmm. I'm sure there are people listening to this that aren't in the best financial situation. Um, congratulations on having something to live, uh, to listen to a podcast on, but beyond (laughs) that, uh, you know, I know that there are probably people that are worried and, and it's easy for me to say, Oh, but just be happy with what you have and don't wear yourself out going after riches. Right. I say that in my, you know, four bedroom house, admittedly it is a townhome in not the best part of Los Angeles. Right. But it's certainly more than I used to have, and it's sure. more than, than some people have, right, you know? Right. And so I don't want to come from a place of having and telling people who have not that, oh, no, no, don't don't worry about it, you know, you'll get there. Or even if you don't, just be content. Um, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to discourage people like that. Um, but what I will say is that, and I myself, I'm about to repeat something that I have a hard time believing, but everybody says it is true. <laughs> 
uh, people that win the lottery often are flat broke within a few years. Yeah. And they're often more miserable um, as a result. I believe there's a, it's not like an overwhelming amount. It might not, it might, it, it is a surprising amount given the situation. Uh, there, there are suicides yeah. from people yeah. that win the lottery. And honestly, and I'm, I, I feel bad being presumptuous and, and assuming that I know why somebody would kill themselves in that situation. My guess would be this didn't fix everything. Yeah. I have more money than the vast majority of humanity. Mm -hmm. So why am I still so sad? Why am I still fighting with my wife? Why am I, you know, whatever. Um, you know, I've spent so much time trying to get money, trying to get rich that now that I am, I don't really have anything else to, to live for. I don't have anything else to, to strive for. And, um, now I've read that over and over from, from, scientists from sociologists uh and yet i still have a hard time believing it and there's an element even in me that says well yes but if i won the lottery surely i would know what to do with it (laughs) i would be fine my you know but honestly it's i might squander it i don't think i would i think because i'm married to somebody who's more uh disciplined than i am (laughs) um but uh but at the same time like the fact that you you the happiness seems of these stories seems to begin and end when they win the lottery. Yeah. After you don't hear much after that. And right. probably there was a reason. So, um, I would like to make one, just insert one brief little quote. I believe listeners could call me out for this. Cause I, again, was not prepared to say this, so I didn't look it up. I believe the quote is attributed to Clarence Darrow. Um, but, Someone asked, you know, in towards the end of his life, what's a what's an element? And Clarence Darrow, I believe, was an atheist, um, mm-hmm. you know, noted lawyer, um, very famous historical lawyer. Um, they said towards the end of his life, what you know, what's a word of wisdom that you would give? And I believe this is one of the quotes that's attributed to him. He says, "I wish someone had told me that when you reach the top, there's nothing there." Hmm. And you know, that's a very fatalistic sort of idea. Yeah. But you're talking about this notion of, well, I wouldn't squander it. I wouldn't waste it. Yet, yeah, you know, the, it, it it certainly doesn't. In you yeah. talk about you talk about titles, simple plan, and then you look at the title, Hell or High Water. Yeah, implies a certain degree of stubbornness, no choice. Yeah, this this is the course of action that we're on. Period, and uh, because you put all of your you know mixing metaphors left and right, put all of your eggs in this one little yeah. basket. This will fix it. This will make everything right. And I think that's probably why so many scriptures advise us against not necessarily the, the, and this is where a lot of sort of Americanized Christianity tends to muddy the waters here a little bit because scriptures, I don't think indict the, the possession of wealth or even the acquisition of it, but they heavily, heavily, heavily indict the, the need to acquire it and the feeling associated with this will make everything better. Yeah. I have uh, a quote here, a couple of quotes. One is from the character Toby played by uh, Chris Pine in hell or high water where he says, I've been poor my whole life, like a disease passing from generation to generation, but not my boys, not anymore. Right. So clearly this is going to elevate him out of his circumstance and he's going to break the the chain of poverty. And indeed, he does seem to sort of win at the end. Yeah, to a degree. Yeah. However, spoilers, he's lost his brother. Yeah. His brother has killed a number of people. 
yeah, including someone that we have gotten to know. That's the key. We have gotten to right. know Alberto. Mm-hmm. And so we can't be happy for Toby's success because right. we know that it came at the, at the price of people that did not deserve this. Yes, exactly. Um, also there's the implication that Jeff Bridges is going to stay on him mm-hmm. for a while um, yeah. and neither man will be happy at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's also this very heartbreaking moment, uh, in a simple plan where Jacob is talking, uh, about what he hopes the money can do for him. Right. Right. And he says, Hank, you know, I've never even kissed a girl before. And you know what, if being rich will change that I'm all for it. I don't care. I just want to feel it. You know, I just want to know what people do. I don't care if it's because of the money. This is a guy who's willing to be with a woman who only cares about his money. Like to him, money will allow him to live as a person. I know some people say that that is, that that's true, that when you are grindingly poor, you don't have the freedom to do, to live like a normal person. Um, and so I definitely understand that, but, but I do think that the, 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 uh, elevation of money as the thing that will fix everything, it can fix things. Mm Mm-hmm. But you, ch- but chances are the people for whom money is the most positive element, um, not the most positive element in their life, but I mean, for whom it is the most positive, um, chances are there is something else governing their decisions. Yeah. Um, it's not merely, I have the money and now I can do whatever I want. It's, I have this, this code of ethics, a code of morality. There is something else at the top rather than the top itself to right. go with that Clarence Dara quote, um, that will probably influence how they spend their money, how they save their money and how they look at money. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, and that's one of the things that that's kind of what we're getting at now is obviously we are Christian and we believe that, that God will take care of us one way or another. And I know that that's very difficult to, to accept, especially when you're in, in some bad days, you know, I've been in some rough financial straits where Jen and I were down to our last couple hundred dollars in the bank. Uh, and we were like, and I had just gotten laid off Mm -hmm. and Jen's business wasn't starting. It wasn't really kicking off yet. Yeah. And it was just like, I'm scared. Like I'm actually scared now. We, she had like some bonds from a, from being a kid, Mm. uh, that we had to cash in. Um, and it was very scary and it was hard to believe that God was going to take care of us in that. Yes, we could have asked our parents for money. Mm-hmm. We didn't want to. Maybe that's a pride thing. In fact, I'm sure it was. Yeah. Um, you know, if you have that resource, why not uh, right, utilize right. it? But at the same time, we were grown ups. We were adults. We weren't going to go running to our parents for this. And so, but that that fear is one that I can, I can totally understand. And then for some people they've had that fear and they don't have parents they can run to uh, who have money. And so, um, you know, but what I'll say is that just from a anecdotal standpoint, um, the God has taken care of my wife and I pretty consistently. Um, in so many ways. Uh, and sometimes things get bad and then something else gets dropped in our lap or, or something we've been working toward finally comes to fruition, whatever it might be. Um, 
And it's, it's to the point now that when things are kind of rough, like, you know, Jen's business wasn't doing so great this past year, it did fine. And it did, you know, but it didn't, it didn't do as well as the year before. And Mm. so Jen was feeling very despairing. And, and ultimately I had to say, we're, we're going to be taken care of the way we have been countless times before. We always get into this. We yeah. always fall into despair over some financial situation, some professional situation. And then God always brings us out of it. And maybe not in the way that will set us for life. In fact, right. that's definitely not true. Um, but in a way that, that carries us to the next thing. Um, I have this, uh, I have this small painting that a guy did um, and the painting is called light my path. It is to my knowledge, not a, the guy is not a Christian or anything, Mm. but it's, it's this uh, very stylistic, very expressionistic, uh, almost Tim Burton esque um, painting of a, of a forest. uh, And there's a lone lantern hanging on the branch of a tree and that's Hmm. it. Wow. And, when I saw that and when I heard the, when I, when I read the name, the title, wait, do paintings have titles? Yes. Okay. When I read the title of the painting, uh, I, I almost got a little choked up, um, just because this idea of, yeah, sometimes, in fact, most of the time I would say that is how God lights your path. Mm-hmm. It's one lantern at a time. Yeah you are about to step out of one pool of light and you might actually step into darkness for a moment. And then there's another one. Right. And right. it's easy to say like, I'm going to stay in this pool of light. Cause I don't know when the next one's coming or it's another one. It's another thing to, when you step into darkness to completely despair, but there's always going to be another one. It might not be as quickly. It might not be as, as big a pool of light, but it will always be there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so, I'm sure listeners, some listeners are listening to this and thinking like, well, you don't know what it's like. You don't know what it's like for me right now. And I don't know what it's like. Right. Um, but, and I wish that I could say, I wish that I could guarantee you that whatever your situation you're in, things are going to be okay now Yeah. or, or they're going to be okay soon. I don't know what okay looks like for you. I don't know what soon looks like for you. Right. Chances are, if you're like me, Okay is never okay enough and soon is never soon enough. Yeah. Um, I would agree with that. But, you know, the Bible over and over again says that it's not that money is the root of all evil. It's the love of money. And there's nothing wrong with having money mm-hmm. or even seeking money. But when you think that money is going to solve everything and that more so than God could solve everything. Right. Um, that's when it becomes a problem. And that's when suddenly the acquisition of money is the most important thing. That's when you, you know, it's, there's a, a wonderful line, uh, that is said with delightful, uh, lack of awareness on the part of Bridget Fonda, where after some horrible things have been done, um, in a simple plan, she's talking to her husband. She says, nobody would ever believe you'd be capable of doing what you've done. And she's saying that as a comfort. Yeah. To right. Him. Right. He's like, he's like, we're going to get caught. She's like, no, no one will suspect you because no one would ever think that you're capable of being as evil as you've been. Yeah, exactly. You know? And exactly. it's, 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 it's kind of funny, but it's also very harrowing. Sure. Um, and then there's a line that Jacob says where he says, do you ever feel evil? Mm-hmm. I do. Mm-hmm. And these are guys that actually 
they're well-meaning, but they have done evil things yes. because this money will solve their problems. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think there's a reason you, you're touching on so many things and I know we probably need to, to wind down the conversation, but there's a, um, uh, there's a reason I think that in what we typically call the Lord's prayer, the prayer that Jesus gives his disciple, I think there's a reason it's daily bread and not monthly or yearly yeah. or so that it's yeah. that. And, and I think about, and I've said this before in, in other conversations, either on fear of God or maybe here, um, that it's significant and sizable to me that the manna that the, children of Israel had in the wilderness, they could only gather enough for that day. Yeah. They had to trust each morning when they woke up that it was going to be there again. And if they tried to gather more, the more that they gathered was sick and full of worms and yeah. it rotted. And But if they gathered just enough for that day, then they were sustained and they were perpetually sustained at a break-even yeah. point. And that may be confusing to a lot of people, but I think sometimes... There's a, I th think sometimes it's better if we're believers, particularly, but I think for anybody, I think sometimes it's better to be in a place where we utterly have to depend on God for every need than to be advanced enough to a place that we feel like we don't really need him that yeah. much. Like, okay, we'll, we'll check in with you again when we get down to our, you know, lower parts of our bank account. Yeah. Perhaps it is contrary to logical thinking. Uh, perhaps it is better to live in a perpetual state where this morning I've got to wake up and trust that my needs will be met. Well, it's that, it's that thing, you know, better the little that the righteous have than the wealth of the many wicked. That is, that definitely flies in the face of what we think of in right, this, right. in this, uh, culture, certainly because movies and TV shows will often show, you know, criminals doing so well and <laughs> right, you just think like right. oh yeah that's the way to do it you yeah, know? yeah it's you hear it over and over again the idea that uh like oh banks you know the fdic you know if you <laughs> if you rob them like everything's federally insured you're not stealing from any people you know and then you watch movies like oceans 11 <laughs> right again i like these movies don't get me wrong but sure sure there's this element of after a while i start to wonder if in people's minds if the conversation is less should we do it mm-hmm so much as, do you think we could? Yeah, right. Do you think we could get away with it? And Who's how? To say? <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, so it's, uh, yeah, it's these movies, I think, along with movies like Glengarry Glen Ross, American Buffalo, um, Killing Them Softly, that really emphasize a desperate, uh, you know, this is not a reversal of fortune situation. It's not Sunset Boulevard where you see like the emotional and moral decadence of the rich. Right. This is people that need money. These are right. people that are in a bad situation and uh, and they are then willing to do whatever they can uh, to get it. And therein lay the problem, because if you yeah. don't have uh, a morality and a philosophy about money and a philosophy, a philosophy about life right. uh, dictating how you approach money, um, then you you probably will not be in the same situation as the characters from Hell or High Water or A Simple Plan. <laughs> right. But that level of desperation and how much you're hinging on this money. Sure. You could actually achieve that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I would encourage everybody to keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we will end it there. Uh, episode unsurprisingly longer than I expected, should have expected it. 
this has become a problem now. <laughs> um, so uh, thank you everybody for listening. Uh, you can email me Tyler at more than one lesson.com. You can uh, find Reed's podcast, the fear of God on yes. iTunes and at more than one lesson.com recently got a write up in dread at dread central. Yes. Very exciting. Um, that write up is now like two weeks old, but, uh, <laughs> but it just popped up while we were recording. So, um, anyway, uh, and then you can follow me on Twitter at more lessons. Are you on Twitter? I am at Reed Lackey. At Reed Lackey. Makes sense to me. Uh, and then you can like us on Facebook. And please do, if you if you get the opportunity, please do leave us a, a comment on iTunes. A nice comment, please. Because um, that's actually very helpful, especially this time of year. So, uh, yes, that is it. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Reed, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. And we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.